so how are things going? <laughs> how is it for you all? Sometimes um, when we're meditating and we're asked to sit quietly, then what we're doing is we're turning and exploring what is happening within and starting to see quite deeply what's there, particularly sitting in the hall. At other times, we're bringing our meditation into daily life. But when we come in here and sit down, what do we see? What's being known? Often to start with, not very much probably, there's just a lot of confusion and it's hard to settle on anything at all, hard to know what's going on. But most of the time probably it's unpleasant, not very comfortable, the body feels awkward, the breathing feels difficult, the mind is just going crazy. So as we start to sort of tap in a little more carefully, we start to see perhaps things like busy mind a lot of judging, a lot of planning in the future, maybe some wanting, wanting things to be different than they are, wanting to be somewhere else than where you are. Perhaps a lot of fear or worry is coming up or doubt, what on earth am I doing here? Maybe it'd be better if I was on a beach somewhere. (laughs) So these sort of things then start to be known. What's being asked and recommended is just to stay present, to stay open, aware. How easy it is to say those words or think them, but how hard it is to actually do them. How do you do that? Is it possible? It's just asking, is it possible just the next few moments to be here, to be present? You don't have to think for the next hour, the next day, the next week or three weeks. Just now, is it possible to be open? Trusting our capacity to do that, to be mindful and begin to see what isn't seen before, to begin to understand the truths as they are revealing themselves. But as some of you have mentioned in the last few days, it's pretty difficult to do this. This practice can be really hard, challenging, not easy. Still you're here. Even though you know a retreat's difficult, you're here. Why are you here? What brought you here? And maybe you've come back, you know, the first second, third times. What brings you back? It's helpful to reflect on this actually, to think about why am I here actually? We have aspirations, we have goals to come here. Or maybe we just want to come and find a little peace, a place to heal for a while, to find a way of being that's slightly different from how we are in the world. Maybe we want full awakening or something in between. Sometimes we're just hoping for a little shift in who we are, a sort of a little self-improvement exercise going on. So we become a little kinder, a little calmer, 
a new beginning. But this actually doesn't happen that instantly, does it? It takes a while. Changes can be quite incremental. The question comes back, well, I'm here. Can I trust this? Can I trust awareness? Can I keep things simple? And even that's not easy. How complicated our life can become, even here. Not a lot of distractions. And yet we can still get quite busy and distracted. So simply being here, we've let go of a lot of things. We've renounced a lot to live a much more simple existence here. And that helps, doesn't it? It really helps us to settle a little without all of those distractions. So then we start to ask what's needed, what's possible today. Can we engage in what's happening? Can we be even interested in what's happening? All that's happening is sitting, walking, breathing, eating, bathing. Not a lot. How much effort is needed to sit, to walk, to breathe, to eat? to bathe. Not a lot, in fact. So paying attention, seeing how much effort we need to pay attention, to be aware. Is it possible to be aware of the breathing, not the thinking about each breath, but actually aware Again and again, looking at what the attitude is in our minds as we're here. What are we bringing to this moment? Are we staying relaxed? Are we struggling, angry, frustrated? Is it possible to soften? Sometimes it's a lovely idea to have a sense of receiving the moment, receiving the breath. And just exploring what extra do we add to our experiences? What's extra? Notice when caught. Is it possible to soften and release when we're caught up in something? Just accepting too, this is how it is right now. Can I be with this? Patient, aware, open. Can I trust? Am I wanting things to be other than they are? Just watch too, if possible, the importance of perception how we filter what we see, how we don't see a lot of what's arising and passing. We don't recognize often what's there.
what's necessary and what's unnecessary. A teaching of this from the Dhammapada, 111. Those who mistake the unessential to be essential and the essential to be unessential, dwelling in wrong thoughts, never arrive at the essential. So it's that sense of just what is necessary, what is essential, what is extra, what is unessential in the simplicity of being here. Just notice how many views and opinions we have about practice itself. What we want to do is see whether we have the right understanding about this. Just keep asking what's happening, what needs to be known, and also how am I relating to that, to this moment? How am I relating to this This is a very important part of practice. So it's not just knowing what's going on, but also our relationship to it. So this evening I want to explore more about right understanding and right view, and also relationships that we have to everything that's arising. How are we relating to ourselves in practice? Something Ajahn Sumedho has said, In my first years with Ajahn Chah, I used to be very serious about meditation. Sometimes I really got much too grim and uh, and solemn about myself. I would lose all sense of humor and just be dead serious, all dried up like an old twig. I would put forth lots of effort, but it would be so strung up and unpleasant thinking, I've got to do this, or I'm too lazy. I felt such terrible guilt if I wasn't meditating all the time. A grim, joyless state of mind. So I would watch myself meditating like a dried-up stick. And I kind of thought that resonated with me when I first read that. Because I remember how serious I used to get in practice. You know, I wasn't allowed to smile, no eye contact, not allowed to look at anybody, probably not even allowed to look around and enjoy the day outside because everything had to be very serious. And in a way, that sense of being like a dried up old stick had a lot of resonance. And in fact, I remember being here at the retreat center on a three-month retreat. And at the end of it, somebody I knew quite well said to me, that whole retreat, you were so serious. (laughs) And I said, you never smiled once. (laughs) And I thought, wow, what was my attitude at that time? You know, was I really enjoying being there at all? um, Or was I just so deadly serious? So sometimes it's like, watch whether there's any lightness in the practice at all. I appreciated the honesty that Ajahn Sumedho shared about this. He went on something like this about when the whole thing seems so totally unpleasant, I would remember the opposites. Things like, you don't have to do anything. There's nowhere to go, nothing to do. Be peaceful with the way things are right now. Let go. 
find a sense of ease. And I would like to say, just sometimes notice the expression on your face, if you can feel it, how much tension there is, how much frowning there is, and see whether you can sort of just lighten up a little bit sometimes. Soften and see how it can shift the attitude that you're holding the practice with. Something to keep in mind here is if we want life experiences to be different, we have to do something different. We have to just shift how we're holding things, shift our approach. And this involves some level of action. It's not just a passive state of receiving all of the time. Sometimes we actually need to be quite active around this and quite engaged. We start to see that we have choices about how we hold our view of the world, how we hold how we live our lives. So an example might be, we may see that things change. And this process is often beyond our control. Things change. That's the reality. This is a Nietzsche. And we can open to this change. On some levels, we can start to see it. Otherwise, what we do is we spend most of our time resisting what's happening, resisting these natural changes. How much of the time do we resist the fact that we're aging? You know? I know that I avoid it (laughs) as much as I can, and suddenly it's quite a shock. Oh my goodness, things really have changed. So when we can start to see this and look at it, it shifts what's going on. We start to see change isn't an enemy that we need to avoid. It isn't at that at all. What we're doing is opening to the nature of change, and this actually creates enormous potential to grow. Changes in nature really create and bring about regeneration. And the same within ourselves. It's the same with our body and mind if we start to open. Things change. You might not notice it. So sometimes in practice it's very helpful to notice when you feel very stuck. It may be in a mind state where you're feeling a lot of anger or some, or, you know, some beautiful peaceful state. And we think it's going to stay forever. But it doesn't. Watch the change. Often we don't notice the change. We're already on to the next thing. Start to see what change actually represents in practice. We all have deep values, opinions, views about certain things, attitudes, beliefs. That sometimes can do with a little changing. Sometimes we get very stuck in them and we can't open. So it's helpful to see how we get closed around these things, how the mind will tend to hold on to them and close around them. What we want to see is whether we can open up a space to see things differently, to hold the world in a different way perhaps. Just see that. Make a space. Also perhaps to see how we ourselves are changing, how we can hold ourselves in a different way as well. First, what we need to do is be able to stop and see any of these things happening. And then perhaps see if we can step back a little, be a little more objective, so we can see a little more clearly from a perspective, a little removed, to see what needs to happen. And then from there start to know, how is it that I need to respond with care, with kindness, to this situation as it's unfolding? 
So what's being asked is not to jump in too quickly to reactivity, not to jump too quickly to conclusions or judgments about things or criticisms, but just to keep reviewing our outlook, keep reviewing how we're holding what we're experiencing and seeing whether we can move in a more positive direction to receive all of these things. Too often we stay with the same old habitual patterns, not open to learn and to experience something new, to investigate. But this is where the practice is asking us to be willing to open, willing to investigate and reflect. That's why we're developing what's called discriminating wisdom or discernment. Really discerning, really starting to understand in a very discriminating way. A little um, experience I had recently, I think it it's, uh, was just in, in a daily life experience, but I think it reflected a lot. I got a lot of understanding about certain patterns in my life from it that I'll share with you, I thought. Um, recently being in Australia, uh, when I'm living there, I love to ride a bike um, everywhere if, as much as I can, not drive a car very much. And um, I don't ride a bike very often because I'm not in Australia very much. I live here most of the time. But when I'm there, um, I love to get out my bike. And I was grumbling about it this time I was back there. And I was feeling that there was something wrong, even though I'd had it quite recently serviced. And I thought that the gears weren't changing properly. And I thought they were sort of getting stuck and there wasn't a smoothness about them. So when I would come up against a big hill that I was going to have to use a lot of energy to get up, I would change the gears and they didn't seem to slip down very comfortably and it was very jarring and it required a lot of effort. And I thought it could be doing a lot better than it was. So I was grumbling a lot about my bike and I needed to go and have it looked at. And I was out on a long bike ride with a friend of mine and I was telling her all about this. And she was listening to me and as we were riding around on this bike ride, we went past a bike shop and she said, friends of mine own this bike shop, so maybe we could just drop in and get them to have a look at your bike and see if there's anything wrong. So we went in and the manager wasn't busy, so he said, okay, I'll take it for a little ride and have a look. So he went for a ride and he came back and he was looking a little sheepish and he goes, actually, the bike is fantastic. There's nothing wrong with the bike at all. The gears are changing fine. I think it may be something wrong with you. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, what's wrong with me? And he said, you know, I think you have got a bad habit about how you're changing the gears. So tell me about what you're doing. So I explained to him and he said, mm, that's not quite right. <laughs> so he clarified how I could use the gears much more effortlessly, how it would make my riding much more pleasant. And as he was talking to me, it was like, I know that, of course. <laughs> Why did I forget this? And it was sort of like very humbling for me to go, I've been writing for years. I know all about this, completely forgotten. I just needed to be reminded about this. I was getting into a really bad habit with what I was doing and then blaming the bike when, in fact, it was just a habit pattern I got into that wasn't very skillful at all. And as I was reflecting on this, I started to see, 
how often do I do this with other things? That, you know, I just need somebody to point out, wait a sec, what's going on here? Very helpful to look at this, to see where we do get stuck. It's very easy to get into these grooves and start to see, just forgotten something. Ah, I knew that, I've just forgotten it. So what we want to do here is become very familiar with our habits. These patterns, these conditioned patterns in the mind that we get caught up into and see them as just that, rather than who we are, rather than feel that we're hopeless, we're not good enough, we can't bike ride, we can't meditate, we don't have it right. It's not about who we are, because this can bring up a lot of self-doubt and self-criticism. But it's just a habit that we've conditioned in the mind that we can see in that way. It's easier to blame something else, like me to blame the bike, rather than look at what's going on within me. What's my problem here? What am I holding? What am I not seeing? Not taking it all so personally. So we're gathering information. We're using reflection. We're finding discrimination and discernment to really know this. And it takes a great deal of sorting through all of the information we're compiling to see what is essential and what isn't, what we can hold, what we can let go of. We're really looking in and checking. Watch that we're doing this within ourselves, but how much of the time what we're doing is we're judging ourselves and comparing ourselves to others. Oh, they're doing much better than me. Why is that? They're sitting longer or they're moving more quietly or slowly or something else. Watch that and instead turn and start to look within and start to listen to the voices that we may hear that are critical or judgmental and see how much we actually want to listen to them, how essential they really are for us in practice and how helpful they are or unhelpful they are. And even it might not be a voice inside that we can hear, but it just might be a felt sense of being not good enough, perhaps. Pay attention. Explore these things when they're not noticed. They really can hinder practice, coming from a place of wrong understanding about what's helpful. So what we're doing here is looking more and more about having confidence in our, ourselves and our capacity to be skillful, to bring in goodness into practice, how to look at what effort is needed to do this. What effort is needed, as I was saying before, what effort is just enough? What's essential? What's not essential in all of this? So when we look at right understanding and then we look at the effort that we're putting in, we're starting to become a lot more discerning about what we can put aside and what we want to cultivate and encourage. This is where the discernment starts to come in, the wisdom starts to come in. So first of all, we're starting to put aside and protect the heart and mind from attitudes and actions that will cause harm to ourselves and others. Starting to explore very deeply 
our actions and our thoughts and the consequences and the results. What do they lead to? And start to see this very closely, really looking. And then we can start to take responsibility for our actions and our thoughts. Are they helpful or not? If they're not helpful, why do we want to pursue them? How can we find another way of being? How can we find a way of opening and directing the mind that may be much more healthy, much more skillful, in the same way with actions? If they're leading to harm, is this something we want to speak or say or do? In the same way within what's going on too. We begin to know very deeply our strengths and our weaknesses, where we get caught and where we can release. Also become very familiar with our obsessive patterns of thought, the stories that we can spin that can really cause a lot of confusion and doubt, and may find ways to turn the mind to something that's much more helpful. This is for you to find out for yourself how to do that. You've been on many retreats. Sometimes it's helpful to reflect back what was helpful before when I got caught in this situation. Where did it lead? Behaviors are very easy to see, but often it's more difficult to catch the thoughts because they're not so easy to detect. And then the other aspect of this perspective of right view that comes through is really cultivating more the goodness in ourselves. Treasuring that, really bringing those seeds to fruition. To see a more positive energy shift in our practice towards that more and more because it builds trust within the goodness in ourselves. We see it, we recognize it, we cultivate it, we nurture it and reinforce it. Bring these things up in practice. Your generosity, perhaps, your willingness, your commitment to be here, all of the effort that it took for you to be here, all of the renunciation, all of the organization in family and at work that took you to be here, and now you are. Bring that up, bring it forth, your dedication to the Dharma to be here to take time out for yourself. Very important. Very supportive. Something Ajahn Suchito said that may express this was helpful to read. Our practice is both to cut the attitudes and scenarios that support afflictive habits and to see with mindfulness that they are based on no real identity. The balance of effort in all aspects of the path is struck by entering into a fundamental trust and appreciation of one's aware heart. Then because one is worthy, one casts off attitudes and behaviors that are not worthy of us. So I think that instead of trying to make ourselves let go, what we can find is what we want to encourage and what we really value about ourselves because we are worthy of this. And then we start to naturally let go of things that are not worthy. We're not so caught. We're much more open and fluid to flow. The mind and the heart are much more spacious. 
we feel that we're worthwhile. We value the time that we put into this practice. Sometimes we have a strong sense of worthlessness. That can be very undermining. read a story some time ago, um, I think it was in a book um, by Tara Brack, talking about uh, a zoo in Washington, D.C. Um, and at one time, in one of the very old small cages there, was uh, a tiger. Her name was Mohini. And in this cage that she had been in for many, many years, she was just walking around the cage, just pacing around and around. And it was sort of like, or backwards and forwards, 12 foot by 12 foot by 12 foot by 12 foot, almost something like that, constantly. That was her world. And all of the game, all the, the um, animal um, carers, uh, raise the money to be able to give her a much more spacious and natural environment for the rest of her life. And so they got this beautiful open um, enclosure for her to live in. And everyone had raised the money. They were so excited about it. And they actually then moved her into this beautiful environment that was so spacious. And as soon as she went there, she started to move in this same area, 12 foot by 12 foot by 12 foot by 12 foot. She was not able to feel that she could expand out. She was still locked in to that environment that she had held as a cage and wasn't able to see that she was able to open and expand her world. And when I read that, I remember feeling, ah, oh, that sense of being unable, being caged, being unworthy to change and how um, her carers and her keepers had underestimated the habitual patterns that she had fallen into and were unable to help her break them. Bhikkhu Bodhi has put the, um, some words about right view into a very healthy way, and I've summarized them from one of his um, articles that he wrote, that when we approach the Buddha's teachings, we need to bear in mind that its vast array of doctrines have been devised because they constitute right view. And right view stands at the head of the Noble Eightfold Path, which cuts away wrong views and confused thoughts that impede the light of wisdom from illuminating our minds. In the present-day world, wrong views have gained widespread acceptance and currency. And under such circumstances, right view is like our candle in the dark or our compass in the desert. Without a clear understanding of these truths defined by right view and without a keen awareness of the areas where these truths collide with popular opinion, it's too easy to get lost, to stumble in the dark. Our views exercise a potent influence upon all areas of our lives. Views flow out and interlock with the practical dimensions of our lives at many different levels. 
They pervade everything that we do. They determine our values. They give birth to our goals and aspirations. And they guide our choices in difficult times. They're important. Wrong views promote wrong intentions and conduct. Right view in the form of recognition of um, the capacity for our deeds to bring results becomes our gentle guide towards freedom. Just that gentle guide towards freedom. And when it matures into an accurate grasp of the three signs of existence, of dependent arising, of the Four Noble Truths, it becomes our guide to final deliverance. So right view leads to right intentions, to virtuous conduct or sila, mental purification and clear vision or clear seeing. Very important. The attainment of right view is at its core essentially a matter of understanding. Really understanding in a deeply personal way the vital truths of existence upon which our lives revolve. Our lives are balanced. It seeks to comprehend our place, you know, in the big scheme of things, to really see how we fit and to discern the laws that govern the unfolding of our lives for better or for worse. Very essential, very important. So I'd like to look a little more deeply now of what that means in our lives, in relationship. We're always in relationships. Our lives are lived in relationship to other things. These relationships can often reflect our understanding, where we fit in our world. And unfortunately, I find so much of the time being here on retreat in this environment and also when I go back to Australia or I go out in the world, so many people are saying how fragmented their lives are, how overwhelming and stressed their lives are, how disconnected they feel from any relationships they may have because they're too busy, they can't slow down. And I don't know if that resonates with you as well. Never contented, always wanting things to be different, to be better than what's readily available here and now. Always sort of like on a treadmill that never stops running. Words I hear people use, not enough time, running out of time, no time for myself, feeling stressed, resentful, angry, incomplete, scattered, never good enough, lacking in some way. When I hear that, it just sort of brings up a lot of tension. Reflect and feel what that must feel like. And I know I've been there, I've lived there. (laughs) Not a good place to live, but we all get caught in that in some way or another. It's such a relief just to put down some of that when we're here. But somehow a lot of it keeps churning and churning. Hard to get off that treadmill, keeping those things going. Stepping out of our busy lives, knowing are we going to step back in? Is there a way to hold it differently? How can we do that? What we need to do is slow down the momentum, if we can. The Dhammapada, one verse that's helpful, 
slowing down the momentum, anyone who lives freed from habits of clinging to past, present or future, possessing nothing, is a great being. But where to start? Just stopping that momentum, if we can. Learning to just step back a little, slow down a little. And that's what you're doing here. Stepping out of the fast track that most of you are probably on, connecting with the present. Stepping out also of all of those pools in all of the ways we relate in the world and all of the relationships we get caught up in to sort of see back from another perspective. We're always caught up in some relationship or another. Even here, you're not completely alone. Here, you're in relationships. It might not be that you're talking. (laughs) It might be that it's just a felt sense. Have you had that sense that you know the people around you, even if you've never communicated with them? You energetically know who you like or who you don't, or who's sitting behind you or in front of you or beside you, and you've sort of established some sort of relationship with them? You might notice their walk, or you know their feet because you've seen them move past, or you know how they walk. And out of that, you've created a lot of connection. And what's interesting here is that we don't notice that until often somebody leaves. And then people will go, I didn't know that person was leaving. I never got to say goodbye. And it can be very painful. It's like we've established the energetic connection with them and they're gone and there's a gap beside us. And suddenly we're experiencing a disturbance and we don't know what it is. And then we realize it's a loss. There's a grief there. Even I didn't know that person. I had such a connection with them. I've sat with them for days or weeks or months and they're gone. So even this is relationships here. We're in the Sangha here. We're relating. What always amazes me here is how we can live so closely together and still be in harmony most of the time. (laughs) Even though some people can be really irritating at times, all of this is bringing up our relationship to others. And it brings up a lot of learning about ourselves how we are, even in relationship here. Any relationships can act as teachers here as well. They're like mirrors that reflect back something to us. If we're willing to look in the mirror, often we don't. We avoid looking. We don't want to know. But if we're willing to just stay here and say, even these relationships I'm having in this facility here, are showing me lots of things about um, myself that may have significance for my relationships in the world. The image of the mirror suggests a clarity that brings back, that reveals to us, without biases, without views and opinions and judgments. It just shows us what others are seeing, the pain, the joy, whatever it is. And of course, the ones that do this most deeply are our partners, our children, our parents, those that we're in very deep, intimate relationships with. 
that's where we learn so much more about ourselves as well. So even if it's painful, we want to know what's being perceived about us in some way. We want feedback that's clear, that's honest, non-judgmental, to help us to see ourselves and know ourselves well. Sylvia Borstein is one of the co-founding teachers at Spirit Rock. (coughs) And something that she wrote about her relationship is helpful for most of us who are in relationships in one way or another. She says, it's very easy to get annoyed with people, particularly with those we love. I've been married to someone for 53 years and in a close relationship with them for 56 years. And I think that's quite extraordinary. (laughs) She says, um, sometimes that person makes stupid remark that hurts my feelings, doesn't know he did it, and just barrels right along. Well, I might take umbrage. I feel bad. I radiate bad. I'm feeling that, and I let that person know. But still, the other person doesn't notice that I feel bad and just keeps merrily going along in his own way. Doesn't even notice that anything's happened and just keeps saying what he's saying and doing what he's doing. So I think to myself, I'm not going to say anything back. As a matter of fact, I think I'll just go off to my study now. And I go in there and I get a little more annoyed and aggravated because he still hasn't figured it out. So I decide I'm not going to cook that special meal for him tonight. Or perhaps at some point I start to see, ah, the mind is hatching revenge. (laughs) The mind is not open to this at all. The mind is feeling angry or whatever. The mind, I like the way she says, the mind is hatching revenge. It might take me a little while to catch on to this fact, but if I'm paying attention, I eventually see the truth of the moment. The truth is that I'm actually angry. I'm plotting revenge. And then I see that's unwise, unskillful action, because it's just compounding my distress. And he doesn't know a thing about it. It's compounding this distress within me. I didn't feel good to begin with, and now I've added the difficulty of a vengeful mind which hurts even more. If I allow myself, I can see that he actually loves me and simply said something that was quite ridiculous because he wasn't paying attention. All of that other stuff is just editorial chatter. I've saved up as proof that he doesn't love me. I've manufactured a story and then frightened myself with it. Have you ever had that feeling that we do this and then we create this whole scenario? We don't check it out. We don't say what's happening. And suddenly we're feeling very distressed and feeling awful about something and then started to really terrify or frighten ourselves. 
So just by being able to say what's happening and to acknowledge that can help us start to diffuse, to work with, to be honest, to say, whoa, look at this. What am I going to do now? What am I needing to do now that might be much more helpful and skillful than plotting revenge? (coughs) Mindfulness in this way starts to stop and bring in what's truthful in this moment, what's needed in this moment. And if we can be kind, not judgmental, it can really help us to say, I don't think he meant that. I don't really want to be filled with needing revenge. What can we do differently here? One way that can be very helpful when we start to spin out in some of these very difficult things is to start to bring a level of kindness and empathy to listen. To listen to ourselves, to listen to the other person, to hear what's being happening, and to really bring a sense of presence into the body. Sylvia says one way that helps her with this to bring a sense of kindness to the present moment rather than judgment and criticism and adding more layers of distress to whatever what is already there is as you breathe in just to say may I meet this moment fully and as you breathe out may I meet it as a friend or as you breathe in may I meet this moment fully and as you breathe out May I meet this moment with kindness, not judgment. Sometimes just that coming to the breathing, just coming back and greeting it and meeting it can be helpful to step back. You might try it and see how it feels for yourself. Everything that we can do, can we connect with that sense of holding it with kindness, with gentleness? It starts to reveal that we can hold the world in this way. We don't always have to be overwhelmed with the negatives. The late Nyana Panika Tera, a German-born monastic and scholar who lived most of his life in Sri Lanka, spoke of love in this way that may be helpful too, to just see how we can bring it into a moment that might be very charged. It's a love that we can offer that embraces all human beings, knowing well that we are all wayfarers through this round of existence and that we all experience the same laws of suffering. We all experience dukkha. We all want to be free of dukkha. We want to be happy. We want to be peaceful. And just connecting with that sense in that person and I myself want these things. We don't always have them. We can touch into something that goes beyond just the words that were spoken and the feelings that are being expressed. To touch in much more deeply into a relationship that's deeper than this. It's not a conditional love. It's just really honoring the person that's annoying me that's making me angry or frustrated, they too are looking for the same things that I'm looking for. They too have difficulties and stresses. They're not always skillful in their speech. 
They may struggle with life just as I am. And through doing that, we can start to connect. The question may then still come up, can we ever really know another person really deeply? Can we see beyond our assumptions, our conditioning, our sort of like um, perceptions that are distorted in some way? How can we open to and really honor each person that we meet? How can we greet them and open to them in a way that's not distorted, but that's truthful? We need to be able to see that in relationship. And often it just comes with a willingness to be present, to be here, to be available, to be open, to be able to listen and touch another person and hear them. And in the same way, we then start to ask ourselves, is it possible to connect with ourselves in the same way as well? To start to see each other person and ourselves in all our varied ways, in all our textured ways of responding, honoring others and also ourselves in this. To do that, we need to really stop, stop, slow down, pause, come into being very present with whatever we're doing in whatever relationship we're in so that we feel a connection not a disconnection. This is where we're practicing. It isn't about just me and nobody else. It's about how we relate to all beings, not just human beings, how we relate to every being that comes into our world. Pausing, connecting. As we come into that still pause, It allows us to know what's happening in this moment before the next moment rushes in. What's needed in this moment before we rush in to do. What we're asking is, can I stay, be present, be available to me and to others? So let's just sit for a few moments and really be available to listen, to hear what's happening for you now. How are you relating? to all the varied aspects of yourself. How available are you to see all aspects of yourself? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.